guys and welcome to another edition of the Fight Type Boxing Podcast, um, where you get to pretend that uh, I'll keep doing some classy music. Um, I'm Lukash, as always, and there's a lot to talk about this week. So, no, I'll lay it out quickly and then let's get started. Obviously, the main event was um, Jamel Charlo against uh, Brian Castagna, the rematch at 154 um, for all the belts. And that was a good fight and a good performance. And yeah, there, there'll be stuff to talk about there. I'll talk about um, Jerry Ennis because he's great. We'll talk about, um, I'll do a brief mention of Zerda Ramirez. Um, it's not really an awful lot to mention there, but um, I'll do a brief mention of that. And I'll, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about William Zapeda. So Pedro on that card, and then I will talk some about Martin Bacconi as Tony Yoka over in France because that was a that was entertaining to watch, especially if you're on the um, disliking Tony Yoka train. And if you weren't, then you probably should have been. But we'll get to that at the end. Um, first things first. Jamal Charlo goes as um goes as Brian Castagno was. Just as good, or even better, quite than the first one. Um, it ended in no controversy this time, as Charlo knocked his opponent out in the 10th round, but he'd probably already started to pull away by then anyway. Uh, it was an improved performance by Charlo. Um, without, it was, it was a, this is an example of great prep, because this is um, something you might have seen me say already. Um, basically, I talked about some flaws in Charlo before and I talk about flaws in Charlo all the time and I think that some of them are always going to be there but the the adjustments he made in for this fight were just uh, exactly the right ones he needed to do to get to to get through what Castagno was doing and um, a lot of people you know not just me a lot of people predicted that this is what would happen that um, Charlo has the more obvious adjustments and uh and he'd make them, and then Castagne would be trying to do what he was already doing and try to get that home against the new Charlo. Um, I was a little bit, because I didn't know how, um, a little bit hesitant because I didn't know how Charlo would handle his timing issue. And I think we still did see his timing issue, but he just did things that, against Castagne in particular, um, alleviated it a lot. It was a really good, it was a really good performance um, from him. Really good, exactly exactly picked adjustments what he needed to do and you know to talk about that we need to say what went wrong in the first one a little bit to um to compare it to this one i'm not going to do a huge breakdown of that fight but um ultimately my view on what went wrong in the first one is that um well it's pretty much pretty obvious what happened is that he didn't have the he wasn't able to keep castaño off him you know, Castagna being this aggressive pressure fighter, he wasn't able to keep him out of the pocket. He wasn't able to keep off the ropes very much. And he wasn't able to outland him because, well, Charlo isn't a huge volume fighter and Castagno is. And, um, yeah, he wasn't able to control the pace of the fight at all. And he had this issue that I, um, I do have been mentioning for him for a while where he finds it really difficult to land the first shot. Like his jab's really good, but other than that, he finds it really difficult to land the first shot. And this shot selection wasn't very good and it just wasn't, you know, it leads, it puts you one down in any exchange you're having if you, if your opponent always has to land on you first before you get your timing off. Um, and so he had to make a few adjustments. Yeah, and basically, so he, in that fight, in the first fight, he ended up, I mean, it was a draw, but we all know that Castagna should really have won that. Um, well, I say, you know, it wasn't as big a robbery as some we've seen, but broadly speaking, um, yeah, that happened basically because he was, um, he didn't seem to have the tools to keep Castagna out of his wheelhouse and find breathers when he needed them. And in this fight, he just, um, 
yeah, he just focused on the right things that he needed to be doing. His jab was much busier. Like I say, he's got a good jab, but it tends to be an isolated weapon. And I wouldn't say he necessarily joined it to the rest of his game an awful lot better than um, than what he has been doing, sort of um, in a smooth, connected way. But firstly, he used the jab a lot more wisely. And this is an odd thing, because I was going to say he was using it a lot more often, but the numbers don't back that up, really back that up at all. He used it pretty much exactly the same and actually landed it at a much lower percentage than he was um, than he had been in the first fight well you know it wasn't huge numbers anyway but it was according to combi boxes 12% in this one and 18% in the last one I think um, I literally just looked at it a second ago um, yeah it was a 19% in the last one so um, so he was landing the jab less often but um, but to me it looked like he was um, it was controlling the pace of the fight more. He wasn't just sort of randomly throwing the jab out whenever, and um, and yeah, it was landing in the first fight, but it wasn't really affecting what Castagna was doing. And in this one, I felt it was like Castagna was still able to get at him. Don't get me wrong, but um, the Charlo was able to control c control Castagna's approaches much more with a jab and able to stay off the ropes more. I think, and um, yeah, just basically time what Castagna was coming at him with um, better and that may account for the power punches and again I'm looking I don't normally look at CompuBox but um, well I usually do look at CompuBox I don't normally use it um, this directly in my uh, analysis but I think it's a useful thing to look at um, that his uh, power punches between the two fights um, his power punch percentage in this fight was much higher and um, that wasn't only because um, because he worked he used the jab better to find space, but um, but that was some of it. Um, I think, you know, when your opponent's struggling, when a Castaño, uh, this was a weakness that I always thought Castaño did have, that he tends to overreach and um, sort of open himself up when he's struggling to reach an opponent. He gets ahead of his feet and gets off balance. And in the first fight, Castaño didn't punish him for it. And in this fight, he did a lot more. And part of that was because, I think, because he was, um, because he was able to make him work harder to reach him and then um, he was choosing the punches that he needed to better like um, in the first fight he did wobble him a few times but um, there was an, an awful lot of what he was doing was just spamming big right hand onto Castaño's high guard um, and he just kept doing that over and over without any real variation and it was being caught almost every time and in this one he was much more um, firstly much more focused on the body and that definitely accounts for some of the more power shots that I did um, he was um he was working the body and Castaño's high guard is a high guard and he wasn't really able to um um he wasn't really able to bring it down and cover you know he didn't have, he didn't turn out to have this you know super super active guard that he can bring up and down and catch and count you know all of that stuff um, didn't really work for Castaño as much this time and um and when he was throwing patch shots to the head to Charlo um he varied it up more, um, he um, he was trying to split the guard more, like he threw more uppercuts I think, um, you know I didn't sit down and count this but um, I I was frustrated watching the first fight how few uppercuts he threw considering how splitable Charles, um Castaño's guard looks to me and in this one he threw more uppercuts, he threw more shots out of it, basically just straight down, the, straight down the middle instead of trying to come around the side and I think that worked for him and uh, I think it's fair to say that Castaño you know he's got this indomitable engine and, he, and yet he did start to get tired like it would be fair to say that Charlo was already putting away on the scorecards before he knocked him out um, 
and that may be because Castagna was hurt as well, but I think it is also because he was just having to work much more to get, you know, because don't get me wrong, Castagna had joy in this fight. He got his own combination off. He did get Charlo into the pocket, um, and he was able to throw down. But um, first things firstly, um, the the exchanges weren't on on the ropes as much. They did happen, but they weren't on the ropes as much. So he was having to even while throwing, having to follow and chase Charlo to keep him in the pocket, which obviously is more work than if you're on the ropes and just able to unload on a guy who's landing laying on the ropes. Um, and secondly, Charlo, I think he bit down more on extended exchanges. Like, um, I feel like he, um, he was more happy to just go, okay, you want to throw down, let's throw down. Um, and that also wore in the gas tank. This is a, you know, perhaps an, uh, an unexpected strategy against someone who's perceived to have this really good gas tank, but I think it's always worth testing. An opponent who builds his game on seeming indomitable and in sort of not stopping all the time, they will sometimes turn out to melt a bit if you take them just not too far, just a little bit past the comfort zone because they've never, you know, their opponents seek to slow them down rather than speed them up. And um, and so they've never been out of the zone where they're always just able to push to the push to the limit all the time. And um, and I think that's what Charlo did. It was a you know it was a smart idea. It's a risky one because if if Castagno had a had been able to yeah if he hadn't got a little bit tired, I think in the mid in the sort of late middle late rounds, um, he would have been Charlo. You know Charlo was taking more risks here, but I think Charlo is the better defensive boxer. More he's less he's a more hurtful puncher and he himself was less prone to making error to being off balance which is the main you know one of the big issues when you're taking a shot if you're off balance it will hurt you more um, and yeah I think that was um, ultimately the story of a fight and of really good preparation and it just makes you it makes you think that uh, maybe Charlo would turn out to be a sort of rematch specialist and I mean the first time he, he's had the, the last rematch he had with Tony Harrison, it was like the first fight was looking was it a bit controversial against him, and then in the second fight, you know, he, he probably wasn't any wider, but he did take a different approach in on the scores. Possibly, possibly he would have lost that fight for one the distance, but he made he took another more risky, more power shot, heavy game plan, and knocked his opponent out found the weaknesses in Harrison and knocked him out in the late rounds, which is what happened here. So apparently he's dangerous. He's a dangerous guy to give a second shot to, to give it a second opportunity to. Um, it does make you wonder why he can't prep this in the first place, but I don't mean, I don't want to get too down on him. It was just, it was, a, it was, it was good to see. And, um, you know, I tend to, um, I do tend to shit on the Charlos, um, sometimes. Um, if you follow me, if you've been following me on Twitter any time at all, you'll have seen me talking down a bit. Um, but my scepticism of Charlo's ability, of Jamel Charlo's ability, which isn't, uh, which is now you know a lot lessened after seeing this performance, and I still have my concerns. Um, this timing thing that I'll talk about, which I'll get to a little bit more in a second, but um, it isn't matched by my scepticism of his schedule because he always takes the best fight he can. Like his brother, uh, uh, on sixty, Jamal, like, mate, take some fights, please. But um, Jamel just um, 
he does take whatever fight he can, the best fight he can at any time, I think. And um, yes, he has a loss on his record and a draw on his record to show through it. And he's got the rematch wins and um, he's got a very good resume. I think it would be hard to argue um, against him being in the top 10 pound for pound. Um, you know, on a technical skill level, there are, I still think there are plenty of boxers that aren't in the top 10 that are better than him. But you've got to have the resume and Charlo's just taking the challenges and um, and winning, you know, ultimately winning the challenges even if it takes a second go. So fair play to him for that. Um, what is the future part for him? Well, um, it's an interesting one because, uh, you know, he, um, at some point he's going to start struggling to make the weight and he's going to move up to 160, um, which is a bit of a dead zone, even, you know, even not accounting for, he most definitely won't fight his brother. Um, really the only... Um, assuming Golovkin isn't going to fight Charlo because he's going to look at Canelo and he's going to be retiring soon. Other than that, there really is only one fight there. I don't think he's going to fight Andrade, um, but I don't care about Andrade anyway. Um, the only fight there of really of any interest to either Charlo is um, Janibek Alinkalune, who's fighting this weekend um, in a complete mismatch. Um, and that would be, you know, I'd enjoy watching that, but it would be a really tough thing for Jamel Chardo to step up into. Um, if he stays at 144, there are a range of fights that he can take that he might feel now, you know, I'm the king, they have to earn their call and all of that. And uh, maybe it's a little too early to throw um, Tim Chu and um, and Sebastian Fedora in with him. But those fights, those would be really good fights just stylistically. And, um, and they'd, you know, they'd be really fun. And um, those guys, I think, are earning their. They, I think they have earned their way to, to sort of, you know, the top of the division. It's not a super elite division. So there isn't that many, you know, between the guys they've been beating and, and where Chano is now, there isn't really anyone in between them. So, so those are the fights to make, I think. My ideal um, thing to happen would be for Chano to fight first one of Chu and Fedora and then the other. If he wins that fight, then uh, in the meantime... Israel Madrimov is coming up on the rails, but he has to rematch Soros because of a, you know, he he sh he, he should have won that fight. He um, it was a, you know, he was winning that fight, but the, the knockout was silly, um, way past the bell, all of that stuff. So they're having a rematch. He should win that. I'd quite like to see Madrimov fight Castaño. I don't think that will happen. Like it feels like Castaño won't take that sort of dangerous fight to come back around. Um, but I'd quite like to see that happen. And then you know, the winner of that fight goes to fight the winner of the little series with Madrimov, uh, with um, Charlo, Fundora, and and um, Chu. Um, how Charlo does against those two is pretty much comes down to how they take his punches because we know. Um, We've seen how Charlo does against pressure fighters. We just saw it. Um, he's good at landing his shots on them. He isn't particularly good at stopping stopping them from pressing. But he's better at it. You know, he he got better at it the second go round. But he's still, you know, um, Castagna was still able to press. So basically, it all comes down to um, Chu and Fandora, who are both um, pressure fighters in the same mold. Um, whether Charlo can hurt them and stop them coming forward I think you'll find it very tough against Vendora because he has such a huge range disadvantage but um, yeah they're just good fights I want to see and uh, let's let's have them next and like I say Castagno sort of lining up for Israel Madrimov maybe a sort of rematch fight in Israel but that would be great but it's a super division and um, 
and then yeah, we're good. You know, Charlo's done good things there, and and, and if he stays at that way, he's got the chance for having a really good resume if he keeps winning, like a really far better than you know fighters who we lord as being more gifted in this division. And speaking of fighters that we lord as being gifted, uh, Jerome Ennis was on the card. Um, he was fighting Castillo Clayton, and um, he came. He swore. He knocked him out. And, uh, it's one of these things, it's ha- kind of hard to put Ennis into perspective for, I don't want to be disparaging, when we say casual fans, it tends to sound disparaging. Um, if you haven't been paying attention for the last few years in the division, and you see Charlo's last three fights against um, Clayton, against um, Dulorm, against and against Lipinets, you'll be like, forgive him for thinking, okay, when is he going to be tested? But those three guys are tests. Like those three, the, all three of those guys, and Clayton was the, sort of the least proven of them. But you saw him against Rupinets, and he's you know he he's been at the Olympics. He's he's a scored. You can see he's a scored. You know when you see him fight other fights, he's pretty scored and not not an easy guy, guy to beat. And then but Ennis, just all three of those guys, he's just kind of blown through them. And all, like I say, all three of those guys are sort of at the edges of world level. None of them are you know pound for pound they're ever going to be. None of them are going to be. You know, consistent world champions or have been, but they've all been in fights um, with world level guys, with with these guys that we do recognise. They've all been in these fights with these and been competitive or not being blown out. You know, Lipinets has had a Lipinets is the best known of them and the best proven. His only loss to date to the before this had been a tough, but um, you know he lost to Mikey Garcia, but um, he gave guys Mikey a good fight that was down at one forty. This is what first loss at one forty seven, and you know he beat them at Peterson. You know he's he's been around, um, and he drew with Clayton as well. Um, and Thomas Delorm has obviously you know, he's got a lot of losses, but they're all with like um, Jordanes Ugas, Terence Crawford, you know, Jamal James, you know, Stanionis, who is now the um, well, he's not the, he's a champion, but um, you know, you know what I mean. He's he, Stanionis has himself proven that he's here at this sort of world level, um, and he's always had sort of um, Thomas Delorm has always sort of either been competitive or at least not been embarrassed in any of his fights with them. And Ennis just walked in and made them look like they're the same people that Ennis has been beating since he turned pro. And that is, you know, significant. You know, people are saying, well, when is he going to face a challenge? And, you know, I would think you'd hope that the next level up would be a challenge, but the next level up from where he's fighting now, you know, I think some people talk about him like he's only four cans. Um, and really the only... You know, the only people between him and Spencer, um, Spencer Crawford, you know, he's he's seeking to jump a level, um, skip a level between where he's now and Spencer Crawford. But it's only like just between the fringe board level and the pound for pound elite. There's that sort of regular, you know, the guys who keep boxing, you know, the guys we tune in for week to week. Um, so, you know, you've got guys like Ugas, Thurman, you know, Cody Crowley's just announced sort of pushed himself into that level and um Stanionis and Avanesti and all of those would be solid wins. All of those guys would struggle with the guys that um that um Ennis has been you know, absolutely it's not even schooling, he's just um he just, <laughs> just looks in a different dimension of of, of class to them. And uh, a lot of that is a speed and power. But it, a lot of it is also just uh and this is the reason why um, I think it's a different thing. It's the, the reason why I'm more hyped up for him than I am for Virgin Ortiz, for example. And um, 
you know, why other, you talk about other guys who fall off, you know, when they hit certain levels, um, you know, eventually it will get harder. But the reason that me and a lot of others are so hyped about Ennis isn't just because he's really fast and really powerful, but because it's basically impossible so far to push him into a situation where he's at all uncomfortable because he can do everything. He can, you know, normally you see a guy who's a really good outboxer and counterpuncher, like, um, like Ennis is, if you see him, being asked to take the lead, like Cassio Clayton is himself uh outboxer and um won't really engage you going forward. So so his opponent is either gonna turn into an awkward looking fight of counterpunches, or it's gonna turn into um the more gifted guy trying to go forward and looking a little bit more limited. You know, you've seen that happen so often. Um and and it's just kind of and it just kind of blows it blows them you know he Clayton didn't have a chance Clayton um, just couldn't get his counters going because he just got out jabbed and then um, completely and then Ennis pushed the pace and knocked him out and you know um, Lipinets is uh, as a rule he tends to push the pace against Garcia he was sort of dropping off pushing you know Lipinets is a good fighter he manages his tempo really well he can fight in, an, in a few different ways and none of the things that he did were really any problem for Ennis who just kind of you know blew him out there so I would like to see um, Ennis fight um, you know it would be great to see him fight Stenionis or Avanesian I don't think those guys are going to get in the ring with him he isn't going to get Crawford and Sp- I mean I don't want him to fight Crawford and Spence next because I want them to fight each other but um, but I think even though it's too early to say for sure, I don't think he would be in any way an easy out for either of those, you know, pound for pound bordering elite guys and Crawford obviously being, you know, up in the pound for pound distance. Well, Spence should be two now at this, but you know, whatever. Um, point being is that um, Ennis is a magnificent boxer and, um, you know, I would be very surprised if he got found out between now and reaching, you know, he'll lose at some point, probably, hopefully he'll get into enough of these big fights that he'll be challenged enough to lose, but, um, but yeah, he's really good, and, um, it's not too early to say that, you know, you might wonder, like I say, you might wonder about my stance between him and Ortiz, but, um, there's just a level of difference between how much he changes up the game and how much Ortiz changes up his game in between, you know, the challenges he's facing as he steps up to the horses, just there's no, at the moment there's no other prospect doing it to that level. Um, it is fair to say that um, he isn't, um, he's 24, so there are other fighters his age who have already reached world level, like Hunter Nakatani um, is, he's probably fighting at that, you know, that middle level, which I'm talking about, um, you know, he's, he's fought your guys like, um, here, Acosta, and um, let me just have a look at the names on his record. Um, I've spun off to an unexpected thing here. Um, you know, Acosta's, um, Acosta and Magramo and possibly Melinda, probably sort of that middle level just above where Ennis has been fighting. And, uh, Nakatani looked perfectly unfazed in those fights. So, um, so he may be on that level of, uh, hype. And, you know, you should be hyped about Hunter Nakatani, but, um, but Ennis is just great. Um, so. That's all the release to say about that. Uh, so we're going to move on to the next fight. Zerdo Ramirez for um, Berzel. Thomas Berzel, is it? Let me... Yeah, uh, the is being irritating. Yeah, Dominic Berzel. I thought, I thought, thought it was Thomas for some reason. Yeah, he fought Tom, Dominic Berzel. And, um, you know, like I said in my preview, um, 
Bezel has nothing was going to have nothing for him because he's not only not fought anywhere near this level, but stylistically, he's quite a similar fighter to Zerda himself, but doesn't do anything as well. And he's much smaller and um, you know much less strong, and he's slower. And it's just it was a completely pointless fight. And Zerda just did what he needed to do. Um, people do denigrate Zerda's boxing skills, I think, more than I deserved. He is limited in some ways. He's um he's quite straight lined, and he is a very um, big size bully, weight bully. Um, apparently, uh, what was his rehydration? He rehydrated something ridiculous in this fight, apparently. Um, let me have a good look. Um, but yeah, you can see in the room that, um, he, you know, it was a whole different level of, um, of size. He was just massively bigger than, um, than, um, Berzel. And yeah, apparently he rehydrated 30 pounds and came in at, what was it, um, 204 or something? Um, anyway, yeah, he rehydrated 30 pounds overnight and um, Bersel just didn't rehydrate anywhere near that much. So he's a huge size buddy, but he does have nice combinations. He's, he's a very difficult guy to, difficult, difficult guy to exchange with. The guy he beats Zerdo is most likely going to be, or either he's going to be incredible in exchanges or he's going to be the guy who can lead him around and pop him with him, whatever. But there just isn't that much to say about this fight. It's just a complete mismatch. So the one I'm going to talk about from this card is... Just briefly, I'm not going to get hugely into it, but it's William Zepeda. Because um, he fought... Um, he fought Rene Alvarado, who is like one of those guys. He's an Argentine, um, quite a veteran. Um, and he's a guy you'll see who always throw down. He had the two fights with Roger Gutierrez um, in the last couple of years. Um, that uh, they're, they're good, you know, they're good wars that you... You know, they're not all-timers, but they're all, you know, if you if you watch Rene Alvarado, you're always going to get a bit scrapped. And that's what you got here. Um, so Pedro was kind of being billed as this brutal prospect. And then in, when did he fight? Um, he fought um, in March. Was it, no, February. He fought in February. He fought against Luis Angel Villegas. Um, and I watched that fight. Um, it was on the, it was on... Was it the last Zerdo card? No, it was on the Maguire fight card, so, you know, another huge Mexican fella. Um, yeah, so he's clearly, I think he's Golden Boy's, you know, sort of next prospect they're trying to push. And he fought Viedas, and that fight was a mess. And it wasn't, you know, he won, but he won by knocking a guy out who had taken a knee, and he got knocked out himself. And, you know, he would have won anyway, but it should have been disqualification. And it was just a bad, tetchy performance against a guy he should have been on a different level to. So against Alvarado, he needed to be better than that because Alvarado is not better than Viedas, and he was. You know, um, there wasn't really any question of of, of whether Zepeda won this fight. Um, you know, it's a good back and forth scrap, but um, but Zepeda was always, you know, he was always a step ahead. He always had just that little bit of um, basically Alvarado is more or less just a scrapper, whereas Zepeda is a scrapper, but he can sort of get out and box a bit as well. Um, and I don't know, as a prospect, I think this kind of fights what proves if you're going to be, you know, what, um, I assume he's golden boy. I'm just going to check that quickly before I start spacking my mouth off. But, um, yeah, if he's going to be, he's golden boy. Um, if he's going to be the guy that they want to be the next big thing, he needs to be beating, um, 
the likes of Alvarado pretty comfortably, rather than getting into um, you know really entertaining but um, but wars with them. He's not going to ascend to the top. He's a lightweight. This is the lightweights. Just you know, just so we're clear, he's not going to ascend to the top of the lightweights. He's not going to fight your likes of Devin Haney, Tiafimo Lopez, Vasily Lomachenko, if he's getting um, into huge wars with um, with Rene Alvarado. You know, you saw. Gustavo Lemos, you saw Gustavo Lemos beat up Lee Selby. Um, Gustavo Lemos beat up Lee Selby. He's a, you know, another Argentine. If Zepeda ended up fighting Lemos, um, the shots he was letting through against Alvarado are going to brain him when he's fighting Lemos. So he does have to shape up, but I'm not sure because he's going to. I don't want to write off a guy too early, but he's also, um, you know, we're talking about him being a prospect, but he's 25. So he's not like a kid who's going to learn restructure his whole game in between now and hitting the top he's he's hitting that level already and he's going to be fun don't get me wrong i think if he keeps fighting like this it's always going to be worth watching rene alvarado um uh, williams zapeda it's always worth watching alvarado anyway it's always going to be worth watching him he's always going to be scrapped and against some of the top guys i think he'll give them trouble but he's in a division where just being that go to war guy um isn't going to cut it, and where I don't think he's got the all-round, he hasn't got the all-round skills to keep himself safe to be the guy that I think Golden Boy wanted him to be. Attacking-wise, maybe he's you know he's got really he's, he's a really good fighter, like um, a attack aggressive fighter, but um, but he's not Chocolaty to Hernandez or anything like that. He's not um, it's not Lomachenko. But 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 I don't want to get down on him. You know you have to. You, these guys are good. These, these guys are great. Um, it's just a little bit for Golden Boy. It's a little bit like um, he's not the guy they thought he was. But um, you know, yeah, he's he's a guy to watch. He's just not a guy to be. He's not um, he's not one for to be thinking of future for half a power. I would imagine. Um, if he does make it, fair play to him. I'll you know take my hat off. Um, but okay, then that's all there is to talk about from that card. The last thing I want to talk about, and this was very satisfying, was um. Martin Piccoli versus Tony Yoka, which was built the other way. It was in France. It was in Yoka's homeland. Some people, you know, if you have, if you're not, especially if you're not European, you might wonder, you know, what what the fuss was about with the Yoka. Um, and generally, you know, some of this may be unfair, but um, he won a gold medal in um, at the Rio Olympics um, in a complete complete robbery um, against against um, Joe Joyce. And since he turned pro, he's sort of. Um, being protected and um, you know I can't remember all of his fights offhand, but um, you know he's he sort of fought this way up, um, quite protected way up, and he's got this. This is very maybe very unfair because one of my reasons I dislike him is because he seems really smug. I don't speak French and I don't watch the French build-up, so maybe he's the most humble guy in the world, but um, he just doesn't seem like a humble guy and he's finding this sort of protected route to the what was meant to be a protected route to the title shots and um and you know it was just sort of this feeling that you got or you know i say i got but clearly a lot of people did was that um he's sort of been helped on his way to win an olympic gold and he was being helped on his way to title shots and that he's being maneuvered and all of that and that he was sort of willingly you know I don't think he was fixing the cars himself, and um, you know we'll talk about the cars 
after I've talked about the fight, but he just had this air of someone who was not quite happy to be moved about. And so it was satisfying to see this fight that he ultimately didn't want to happen. But Coley was supposed to be a late replacement. He was supposed to be fighting um, Carlos Takam in December, but Takam had to drop out of the fight. And so they signed Bacoli as a late replacement. But for whatever reason, um, you know, it wasn't that late. It was two weeks, three weeks notice. But for whatever reason, they didn't tie Bacoli to that date. So when um, that fight fell apart too because of COVID um, hitting, you know, travel shut down mostly in Europe over the Christmas period again. And, um, and Yoko was okay, I'll move on. I'm going to try to fight Filip Rogovic for, um, that would have been a title eliminator. So that would have been his move for, towards the title. And then uh, it turned out that, uh, that Bacoli had, you know, a cast iron agreement to fight him, so he had to fight Bacoli. And I think he assumed he was going to get him out of the way. You know, a lot of people kind of did. Um, you know, I wasn't, a, you know, I called Yoko, I called Yoko victory, but I was very satisfied to be wrong because, um, because he got battered. And, you know, that makes me sound bloodthirsty and stuff. But, um, yeah, basically there was a big weight difference, um, in the fight, and um, I think it was thirty pound weight difference, which you know heavyweight it's allowed, and you could see it all the way because um, everything Bacoli landed was hurting Yoko, even though it just landed on the gloves. And I would say what was embarrassing for someone who's supposed to be as good as Yoko is is that um, he had no ideas how to turn that around. Like um, the game plan was to wait until Bacoli got tired. You know, Bacoli came in with this huge weight. He's the heaviest he's been. Um, I'm going to just check how much by how much the heaviest he's been. But um, oh no, it's not the heaviest been he's been. He fought against uh, he was two eighty two against Osmano, um last year. But um, but he's a, he's been mostly lighter in the past. Um, and so there was this thought that um that he you know Yoko's corner, which is apparently Virgil Hunter, apparently thought he's going to tire out, but he wasn't doing anything to tie him out. Um, you know, even if your opponent's a big fat guy waddling around, if you're letting him fight at the pace he wants to fight at, he's not gonna tire as fast as you want him to. Even if you're fighting defensively, you have to do something. And Yoko wasn't able to bait Bacoli into anything. Like, he tried a few times to sort of come, come throw it down with me, and Bacoli was like, why would I do that? You know, he took the lead immediately, he knocked Yoko down in the first round, and he won, you know, he was dominant in the fight from the off. So when Yoko tried to turn it around by going on the back foot, he needed to have tricks and traps and baits and feints and things to get Bacoli working, and he didn't. And I think one of the big factors was that I got this badly wrong because I said Bacoli was going to get out-jabbed, um, that he didn't really have an outside game at all. But it turns out that Bacoli was winning the battle of the jab as well. It was pretty sharp, but Bacoli looked... Um, Good. Um, as if, I don't know if, you've, um, if you're not familiar with Bacoli, who I should introduce as well. Um, he's most notable until now for a loss against um, Michael Hunter, which was mostly infamous because his coach, who he's still with, Billy Nelson, um, but his coach had been talking about Bacoli up as a future world champion, and um, you know he'd been getting into wars on Twitter about it, and Bacoli was getting comprehensively boxed out by um, boxed up by um, Hunter. I think he had an injury as well, it turned out, so so that factored. But Bacoli was clearly ready to quit. He wanted um, Nelson to pull him, but, you know, he's too proud to quit himself. And Nelson 
essentially, I can't remember the exact words, I'm not going to go look them up now, but it was essentially along the lines of, you know, you can't quit, it would make me look stupid. Um, you have to win, it's making me look stupid. And that was, you know, I'm surprised they stayed with him, but clearly they learned. You know, I don't want to rag on Nelson if he's learned his lesson from that. Um, the thing with Bacona is that by all accounts, he's done some very good sparring. He's been in with all the top guys in the division, and it really shows because his head movement was sharp. His defense was sharp you know for a guy that big his footwork was stompy you know that 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 was there but his upper body movement and all of that like he's not um tyson fury in there but um but it was sharp you know cool composed um a lot of what yoko did try to do was he was catching and countering um and when he countered it was just yoko was going flying every time now yoko couldn't do anything with him Mm. And yeah, he was smart because, like I say, Yoko tried to bait him into a fight later on. Um, it just didn't really work. Um, yeah, because Bakoda just went, you know, no, I'm going to fight at my own pace. I'm just going to walk around, follow you. If you try to exchange with me, I'm going to smack you up. And if you don't want to exchange with me, that's okay. Your job apparently isn't working on me. And um, you're not going to get the fight back by just dancing around at the end. At the end. I do think history is going to be a little bit unfair to Tony Yoka, and I'm surprised if I'm not defending him. Um, because in the final, the final round looked a bit embarrassing because he needed the knockout, like he clearly needed the knockout. And for most of the final round, he was just dancing at distance and um, not trying to engage at all. And I think what does need to be remembered is that at the beginning of the final round and other times during the fight, he did try to exchange with Bacoli. Um And he just couldn't. There was nothing for him in those exchanges because though he wasn't even slightly getting Bacoli's attention, whereas everything he took was hurting him. So that wasn't going to win him. You know, that wasn't really... I don't blame him for not doing that necessarily, um, you know, in the final round, even though he needs a knockout. Um, I would... What was embarrassing about that final performance is that he was dancing at range, but not still not able to get Bacoli into any way. Like maybe that was the plan. Maybe he was trying to get Bacoli annoyed and chasing something, but it was just wasn't going to work. Um, someone a fighter like Yoka does have to have ways of turning an opponent and drawing him onto things, and that wasn't there. That's the embarrassing thing. Not, I think not the fact that he uh, refused to basically. It would have been a guaranteed knockout. Um, and you know, maybe it would have been more more honest to quit, but he'd have got snated for that as well. There's no way out for him with with dignity in that situation. Like he wasn't going to knock Bacoli out by um, by getting into a war with him. That just wasn't going to happen. And you know, you you might as well save yourself for another day. There's no point taking years of your career. So so I don't blame him for that. But I do blame him for being badly prepared, and I do blame him for being protected. Um, you know, he has some say in where his career goes. I assume. So I blame him for that. Um, I don't know what he said in the final interview that, um, at the beginning because it was all in French obviously um, he was getting booed at the start and sort of cheered at the end so I assume he was honest and all of that stuff um, but I don't know what he said to justify the final round but like I say I'm not too fed up with that like at the time I was going what are you doing but, um, but in hindsight you know whatever it's the same thing as um, when boxers quit um, you know, sometimes you're like, uh, you know, you want to go, oh, yeah, you're, you you shouldn't be quitting, you're a fighter. But at the end of the day, it's their health and they have to, they either want to have to get back in in a few months um, and keep doing this for years. Um, but yeah, no, the thing to talk about is the scorecards because they were outrageous. Because basically, there is no argument for Yoko getting 
any more than two rounds. And even that is generous. Like, um, there's one round where I think most people, I think it was round seven, where most people go to yoga. And then other than that, um, you know, eight of the other rounds were completely, um, this was a 10 rounder, just to be clear. Um, eight of the other rounds were completely Bacotis, and one of them was, uh, maybe, maybe if you were being really generous, you could give it to yoga. There's no argument for him, um, being in the fight. And yet, one of the judges scored it a draw. And there were two knockdowns in the fight, in separate rounds. Well, it doesn't really matter, but, um, there were two knockdowns in the fight. One of them shouldn't have been really, but it, it was scored a knockdown. So um, the guy who scored a draw scored the fight without the knockdowns for Yoka. And then the another guy who scored it by two points for Bacodi, which means that that would have been a draw if it hadn't been for the two knockdowns. So like, what what were you watching? That, that, that I know what they were watching. They were watching the money. Yeah. Last week I talked about how giving the first four rounds to Bivol wasn't necessarily corruption. It was just, you know naivety and seeing what they wanted to see and all that all of that judge you know judges who favor canelo style taking their time to be convinced otherwise in this one there is nothing like there is no argument to be had that they were seeing things wrong there is just no there's no there's nothing there is no argument there's no way to see any more than you know two of those rounds for to give to yoka and yeah, like I say, even that's generous. There's just not, no argument for being it being a draw or for a yoga. What would have been a yoga win without the knockdowns? It's just it's just not there. That this had to be corruption because to be that incompetent, like they wouldn't have got into the position where they're fighting title fights. So you know, that's one of those things. Um, you know, I can't say all France because Britain has its own share of uh, shitty robberies, but um, but that was that. Draw card was one of the most egregious I've seen for a while. Um, it was really bad. Like overall, it wasn't the worst scorecards I've ever seen because the right guy did win in the end, and we've seen the wrong guy, you know, the wrong guy win. So it can't be as bad as those. But the, that one scorecard was just particularly bad. It was a, uh, it was dreadful. But satisfyingly, Bacardi won anyway, um, and he, you know, he won over the French crowd. And yeah, happy endings. And Bacardi. Is going to be, you know, he's not going to be, he's not going to beat Tarsa Fury, you know, let's be honest here. Um, but he's going to sort of, I think he's going to slide into that niche. He's only 28. He seems to have been for, around for a while, but he's only 28. Um, that loss to Hunter has aged pretty well. Hunter's done quite well himself since then. Um, he's going to slide into that niche, I think, Bacoli of, um, you know, your, um, the British boxing always has these guys, your, or at least has for a while, your Chisoras, your Dillian White now, who's going to be looking on the, uh, those guys are going to be looking to retire now. Um, you know, not necessarily straight away, but they're going to be fading back and they're going to not going to be as good as they were. But Cody's sort of going to try to slide his way into that position, I'd imagine. You know, he'll consistently fight for world titles against guys who need a decent name and he'll win some of them. And he might win a world title. Um, he will be, he'll be a sort of a prospect checker, you know, that kind of thing. And he'll do well and maybe he'll win a world title. Like I say, it's not going to be Tyson Fury. He's not going to be. Usyk, although, um, you know, I don't think it's going to be Usyk, but, um, but Usyk will have to work the beating because um, because Usyk can't be taking the kind of power Bacoli was showing in that fight um, on the gloves. But, you know, Bacoli moves too slow for me to give him a serious chance of beating Usyk. But, uh, you know, oh, however it goes. Um, yeah. You know, Bacoli, basically it was satisfying to see Bacoli um, come back, um, come back, beating this much improved and, um, yeah, doing well for himself. That's it for the week. Um, next week is another pretty busy one. Um, 
there's another one that's busy with um you know they're not um magnificently huge um it's not one single magnificently big event uh, i'll keep saying magnificent in this boxing podcast um it's not one huge event on friday i'm not sure if i'll have um if i have a preview ready for friday but coban and is um fighting jj metcalf in spain that's probably worth watching um that'll be worth your time chip is cast fighting fun on manga that probably isn't because who can is fighting on that card just keep an eye on that even if you don't watch it and then on friday on saturday um David Benavides is fighting Lemieux, that he should be there, win that handily. Um, like I said earlier, Janin Bick and Alan Panuni is fighting a completely one-sided fight. He's fighting Danny Dignam, who, you know, Dignam's a British fighter. Um, with all due respect, he, he's he's worked to get to where he is. He's never fought even close to as good as Alan Panuni, and I just don't see him um, see him getting anything out of that fight at all. Um, and I think Jamel Herring's on that card as well. And then, yeah, I think the most equally... Um, equal card of the evening, equal fight of the evening is Joshua Boatsy versus Craig Richards. Where if Boatsy is going to be the guy that we want him to be, he should beat Richards, but it's not going to be easy for him. I could see him slipping up, and they're building quite a strong card there. So, um, so that's sort of, that's the main card sort of worth looking out for. Even though David Benavides is the bigger name, um, yeah, I'll do a preview of the Saturday cards, assuming you know everything holds up. Um, and past that, you know, as I always say, follow me on Crafty Boxing um, on Twitter at Crafty Boxing. Follow the fight site at, at the fight site. Check out our written stuff, including my weekly previews on thefightsite.com, and sign up for a patron for you know exclusives um, of talking about mixed martial art boxing, mixed martial arts, you know, all the all the combat sports. And then, other than that, I'll see you next time. Cue outro music. <laughs>